Uh, Let's uh, turn then again to Daniel chapter 1. On page 1018. And uh, last time we looked at the significance of verse 2, where the Lord actually essentially gave his people into the hand of the Babylonians and what that really meant. In verse 3, we're told that the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Especially these words in the middle of verse 5, three years of training. Now, we're following the history of these four young men who are really part of an elite group of young people, uh, probably between the ages of 14 and 18. They've been creamed off from Jerusalem uh, by the king of Babylon, and the purpose is to train them to actually serve the king of Babylon. Now, they might serve him by actually going back home and running their own countries for him, or else if they're particularly outstanding, like these four young men, they will stay and work for the government in Babylon. We saw last time that that was part of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's policy, and it was followed after him by Alexander the Great in Greece. Now, you'll remember, and as well as remembering, you need to keep the significance of this in your mind all the time. Uh, You need to remember what Babylon itself is all about. It's a city, you'll remember, that appears in the book of Genesis, the very first city built after the flood, and it continues in its history right through to the close of the book of Revelation. It is a city that is in opposition to Jerusalem. It's in spiritual opposition to it. In other words, Jerusalem represents something, and Babylon represents the opposite. Jerusalem is essentially the city of God, in which God dwells. So God is sovereign over Jerusalem's life and culture. On the other hand, uh, in Babylon, man is sovereign, and man is sovereign over its life and culture. You'll remember that that tone was set as early as Genesis 11, when Babylon was first built with the tower in its middle, which was essentially, well, you'll remember, let us make a name for ourselves. It was man-centered. So you have a God-centered city and civilization and a man-centered city and civilization. Humanism is the original idolatry. Man-centeredness is the ultimate and the original idolatry. 
And I think it's important to remember that humanity, and let's particularize it, all of us, all of you, are busy either building Jerusalem or Babylon. We are either building cities in which God rules and God is sovereign over the culture, or we are building cities in which man rules and is sovereign over the culture. Now, I don't really need to tell you what kind of cities we're building in the UK and what kind of civilization we're building in the UK. There is a progressive dismantling of any trace of Christian rule or godly rule over the culture, and it is the exaltation of man. Man rules in parliament, man rules in universities, man rules in schools, and so on and so on. And uh, I want you to remember in connection with that too the significance of the vessels of the temple being brought into Babylon. They were placed with respect into the temple of the Babylonian god. That is just a way of confirming that the humanistic culture has the ascendancy. When humanism is exalted, it will give place to your religion, it will honor your vessels, but in its temple and under its control. So there will be a sop given to religion. Uh, You can even worship if you like, but on our terms, when we say so, and we are always in control of you. So that's the essence of humanism. Christianity or um, the faith of God is brought captive here into the life and culture of Babylon. So that's the essential background here. That's the spiritual background to what's going on. Now, the first challenge that Daniel and these young men faced was the challenge of living in a new location and a radically different location. We saw that last time. They were effectively dislocated from the culture of Jerusalem, from a godly home, and they were brought up in a godly home. That's very, very plain. And even the preaching of Jeremiah, which they grew up under. In their youngest years, Daniel and his friends lived through a revival under King Josiah. And even when times were getting harder, they still had the preaching of Jeremiah. But they were removed from that just like that, just like that as young men and dislocated to the heart of the opposite, right into the middle of Babylonia, into the capital city of Babylon itself. I suggested to you that their encouragement came from their upbringing and even from the names that God gave them. I highlighted Daniel's own name, which stands, of course, at the head of the book, and that's important. The, the name of the prophet is always important for the prophet's ministry. I emphasized that last week. Daniel means God is my judge. In other words, he is my ruler and my protector. So Daniel just has to believe as a young, let's say 16-year-old, that God's got a reason here. He's got a purpose. It was after I went home, actually, last Lord's Day evening that the obvious came to me, and that's that the names of his friends are important too. Mishael means who is like God. Hananiah, his other friend, means God is gracious. And Azariah means God is my helper. And what I did after I went home was I put these four meanings into one single sentence. Who is like God? my gracious judge and helper. 
Well, there you have it. I mean, that, that in essence is what is to sustain them as they're plunged into the middle of this worldly humanistic culture. Who is like God, my gracious judge and my helper? And um, sometimes we find ourselves in that kind of situation where we're in a completely alien environment, educationally, culturally, even in our neighborhood. And we've simply got to start with that premise that God knows this. And for some reason I'm here and I'm determined to rely on his grace and on his mercy and he'll see me through. So the first challenge was a new location. Now the second challenge that I want to focus on today with you is the challenge of a new education. A new location is one thing. A new education is something else. And uh, this new education was really quite sinister in its intention. And the intention is effectively to reprogram them. To reprogram them. I suppose in the past we would have called it a brainwash. Uh, We can now think of it as a reprogramming. It is somehow cleaning the slate or the hard drive and reprogramming it. Getting them to rethink everything, really. Babylon wants them to adopt a new world view. Now, worldview is a term you often hear, I suppose, and I suppose most of us understand uh, reasonably to some extent what it means. But it's a very important thing. A worldview is essentially the way you see the world, really. I mean, that's all it is. It means the few basic ideas that you've got in your head that you carry around with you all the time that are primary. And uh, these few basic ideas are about yourself and about the world. And these few ideas become the lens through which you see everything. So, So you understand, you process everything through these few basic ideas about yourself and the world. And these ideas, of course, about yourself and the world include values, moral values. You have a few basic moral values which govern how you deal with the world and indeed how you behave yourself. And so these basic ideas, intellectual and moral, are the basis on which you judge everything, really. You decide what's good and bad and what's right and wrong and so on. Now, if you've been brought up in a Christian home, I would guess that most of your basic values are Christian values. Uh, You have a Christian worldview. In other words, you see the universe as created, therefore it has a purpose. You see yourself as created, therefore your life has a purpose. Uh, You believe in the reality of good and evil. You believe in the immanent God who is involved in history and in your life, and so on, so on. Unless, of course, your worldview has changed. I mean, the Bible tells us that that's the worldview that we're born with. We actually um, instinctively or innately believe in God and in the reality of good and evil because we're told that the Ten Commandments are written in our hearts. God has written into the fabric of our uh, human nature. He has written the law. We have a sense of right and wrong. Um, Evolutionists try to explain where that came from, but... um, That's where it came from, that we were created in the image and likeness of God. Now, 
Some of you have that worldview. Some of you have lost it. You've lost it because you've got another worldview. And that's the worldview that Babylon pushes. It's a different worldview altogether. It wants you, Babylon wants you to think entirely differently about the world and about yourself. Now, when Babylon teaches this worldview, sometimes it's pretty blunt about it and pretty harsh. At other times, it can be quite subtle, especially if it's overthrowing a a pretty tightly knit Christian worldview. And you have to recognize in the Western world, and especially in our country, we've had that. I mean, we've had a very solidly Christian worldview, if you go back into the past. And uh, the nations of the United Kingdom are nations that actually covenanted obedience to God in the 17th century. That, re- that involves a very high level of understanding of God and ourselves and so on. We covenanted ourselves to recognize God in every aspect of our life, social, governmental, as well as the church. Now, for Babylon to attack that, uh, it needs to be pretty subtle about it, really. It needs to be very subtle. Again, remember the vessels. Remember the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, 5,000 of them, 5,500 vessels of gold and silver, and he places them in his own temple. That's Babylon's way of saying, look, we're not here to destroy you. you. You can keep connection with some of what you were, but we are here to change you, very much to change you. So when Babylon conquers you, you can keep religion, but it's mainly for the history books and for the museums. If you practice it, you must practice it privately, It is most certainly not for the public square. And any time religion is introduced, whether it's into a school or into a university or anywhere, it's under the critical eye of humanism. It's our temple, the humanist says. It's our temple. You must only ever understand religion through our lens. That's why, you see, religious education in school a long time ago switched from being teaching about God and Christ and salvation and so on, switched from being uh, an overview of religions from the point of view of, yes, you've guessed it, humanism. Let us analyze them. Let us compare them. Vessels in Nebuchadnezzar's temple. In other words, what Babylon does essentially is this. I mean, over the past few weeks before we looked at Daniel... We looked for a good few weeks at what it meant to nourish up our children in the training and admonition of the Lord. You remember that? Four or five sermons on that? Well, what Babylon does is it seeks to nourish your children in the training and admonition of Babylon. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. And bearing that in mind, I want you to notice what the powers of Babylon do to these four young men. First of all, it gives them new names. Now, these young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all have names that include the letters E-L or A-H. L is Elohim, God. A-H is an abbreviated form of Yah or Jehovah. 
So they all have the name of God or God's personal name, Jehovah, in their names. So I suppose they carry around in their names just a reminder of who they are. Sometimes we think of names like that. Perhaps if you have the name of your mother or father or grandmother or grandfather, I suppose it's a way of perpetuating an identity and a sense of belonging to a community and a sense of having values. I'm conscious that that's changed a lot. That's a debate for another time. Uh, But essentially, that's very often why we give names. But I want you to notice that Babylon just immediately changed their names and gave them names that had to do with the gods of Babylon. And all these names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all have to do with Babylon's gods. Remember, uh, Babylon's gods are just, if you like, personifications of the forces of nature. It's the worship of nature, particularly the worship of sex and sexual immorality. That's very often what paganism reduces to. And at the apex of this idolatrous system is man himself. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, the power of human thinking and human achievement. So Babylon wants to stamp its identity on these young men at the very impressionable ages of 14 to 18. Now, it may seem innocuous, really. Well, what's a new name? But it's a way of saying, look, you don't need God in life anymore. You've got a new identity. Let's forget your past. And you've come here to Glasgow. Um, A university is opening up before you, or a college, a, a new career, a new life, new friends, new entertainments, new pursuits. So, well, just wipe out your past. Forget your teaching. You've got a new future, and you can have a life and success without God. You came from this rather backward city of Jerusalem. You can rise to the top in Babylon. You don't need God. There's a sinister subtext, actually, to all that, because if you want to get on in Babylon, by the way, you'd better just knuckle down and accept your situation. If you want promotion... If you want success in science, you're going to study that. If you want to ever have your papers published in acceptable, reputable journals, then forget your faith. Poor Tim Farron, if he genuinely had principles, which I think in some sense he must have had, he was harassed to death by Babylon to renounce his principles in public. People who interviewed the poor man were like a dog with a bone. They would not let him go until he publicly said the sacred words that they wanted him to say. And of course, when he climbed down and said them and renounced his Christian principles, they got shot of him anyway. Why? Because they suspected that deep down he may still have had them. Well, if he did, he ought to have kept them. And he ought to have asserted them. He suffered, sadly, the ultimate ignominy of publicly renouncing them and then being got shot of anyway. You see, Babylon just won't wear that. No, if you want to get on in this world, renounce your Christian faith. And one of the things that the book of Daniel will teach us is that that need not be so. 
We can't always tell how the chips will fall if you're faithful to God, but don't think for a moment that doors have to be closed for you just because you are going to stand for the Lord. It may look like it for a time, but that is not at all necessarily so. The one thing I will say to you is that one way or another, if you are consistent in your stand for God, God will use that. He may give you a more bruising time than you expected for a while, but God will use it. You just need to do it. Uh, the people who just slither away will discover that there's nothing to be got from that at the end of the day after all. But they gave them a new name. It's part of getting a new identity, okay? And you'll come under that kind of pressure to forget your past, forget your heritage, and renounce your Christian faith. The second part of their new identity is a new education. For three years, which is basic length of a university course, they are going to study the language and the wisdom of the Chaldeans, who were a kind of ruling class in Babylon, as well as being descriptive of the populace in general. Now, again, that's far more sinister than it sounds. It's not a matter of just learning a new language and studying a couple of subjects. If they were in Jerusalem, they would be studying in what was effectively universities too. They would have a very wide learning and a wide curriculum, but God would be at its center. In Babylon, there's a wide learning, but man is at its center. They would study astronomy, astrology with it. They would study maths. Um, these subjects are all much more advanced than you think. If you think about the building of the Tower of Babel and the cigarettes and so on, the pyramids in Egypt and so on, you'll see how advanced these studies are. Now, of course, our whole system over the last 200 years has moved away at primary level, secondary level, and tertiary level, university level. It's moved away from being God-centered. There's been a sea change. To highlight that, I think I mentioned this to you before, but if you were going to enroll in Oxford, which was probably the leading university in the 13th century, if you wanted to study natural philosophy or the, the natural sciences, your first year had to be theology. Why? Because it was understood that without a correct worldview and a correct understanding of who you were before God, you couldn't understand anything properly. You might learn a lot of facts, but you would never fit them into the right system. So a year of theology first. Doesn't matter what you were doing. Medicine, a year of theology. Within the last decade, uh, Richard Dawkins, who was a professor in Oxford, I think I'm right in saying he's retired, but um, he advocated that the Department of Divinity be shut down. So in these, I'm conscious we're talking centuries here, but it's a significant shift. From theology being a prerequisite for every subject, it suddenly moves to a leading Babylonian humanist saying, shut the department down. It serves no useful function whatsoever. That is the Babylonian world view. In other words, what's being promoted in all our establishments is that we live in a self-determining universe or even a multiverse. God is not necessary to explain anything. Everything can be explained by the laws of physics and chemistry, and we must begin to think like that. So they're confronted with that. You're confronted with that. 
Fine, they're confronted with that. And one of the things I want you to understand right away is that you may think that the Bible has nothing to say to you in your situation coming to study in these situations in Glasgow. Oh, it has everything to say to you. Uh, And this is the point which I'll come to later. You just have to know where to find it and how to apply it. You see, if you're going to go on learning in Babylon without learning from the Word of God, you're in trouble. You'll be Babylonianized. The Bible does have something to say to you. It does guide you. So these young men, as well as being relocated, are being re-educated. Last of all, um, they're being seduced or tempted We're told in verse 5 that the king appointed for them a daily provision of his own delicacies. That's from the royal table and of the wine which he drank. Now I think again that means a little more than it actually conveys on first reading. What it means is that this cream of the youth, a very select group, are actually having a door open to them to a brand new luxurious lifestyle. If, if they really immerse themselves in Babylon, then all the kingdoms of the earth will be their oyster. The whole world will be their oyster. It's the kind of choice that we had um, in Hebrews 11 in connection with Moses. You remember when Moses became 40 years old, he remembered his past. 40 is a critical age in life. There's lots of, lots of critical ages. 60, 65, 21, 18, most of us feel 40 was in some shape or form. Moses was confronted with the past, how his mother had brought him up, secretly of course, and the present reality of Egypt. I mean, he was basically in line for the throne, was he not? So we had the choice between what was called the pleasures of Egypt and the affliction with God's people. Big choice he had to make. He chose well. Even if he's a bit late making the choice. And it's always a bit risky to play around with that. But that is effectively the choice that Daniel's got here. He's got the pleasures of Babylon, which is being signified by this. Well, hey, you're right up there. You're not just going to be in Babylon. You're at the top in Babylon. You can have anything you want. Anybody you want. Any time you want. And with that, of course, there is the sheer pressure that comes from the rest of the students who are just going to immerse themselves in that. I mean, you'll find when this process is finished that there are precious few people who seem to take the stand that Daniel does, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. I mean, don't think for a minute that a curriculum like this and a relocation and a reprogramming, don't don't think that you can just withstand it easily. You can't. I mean, ask yourself a simple question, right? What happened to the rest of the Jews who were brought with Daniel at this point? Remember, this is the first wave of the captivity. It's just a few people. Can we say perhaps somewhere between 60 and 100 of the leading young men, the most promising people in the universities of Jerusalem? What happened to the rest? When they were all asked to bow down before the image in the plain of Jura, what happened to the rest? Where were they? What happened to all the other young men? And if there were young women, young women too. Where were they? They went with the flow. They went with the flow. Uh, 
Next time we'll see why Daniel didn't. But the point is that they did. They sold out. Relocation, re-education, and temptation. How do they respond? Well, we saw how they responded to relocation last time. They just trusted God, plain and simple, that God knew. What about the re-education? Well, let's begin with the new names. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's no record of resisting the new names, of protesting against them. That doesn't mean that they didn't do it, of course, but I think it's significant that the Bible doesn't record that they resisted or protested. I don't think that's the same as saying that they simply accepted the new names, because I don't think they did. And I think we've got evidence for saying that they didn't. For example, when Daniel is an old man in his 80s towards the end of the book, the last king of the Babylonian Empire, uh, King Belshazzar, addresses him as Daniel. It's interesting that, is it not? He addresses him as Daniel. The book, of course, is called, it's not called Belteshazzar, it's called the book of Daniel. I would reckon that Daniel used his Jewish name whenever it was possible to do so, and I would reckon that Daniel and his friends always called themselves by their God-given names, or by their names given by their parents, which were so God-orientated and God-centered. After all, we accept things too, Maybe sometimes unthinkingly we do. The days of the week. The only two days of the week that aren't named after a false god are Sunday and Monday. But even they are named after the sun and the moon, which were usually worshipped as gods. Every other name is, um, it incorporates the name of a false god in it. We, We still use them. The only day I think that we've insisted on changing is the Lord's Day itself, which we usually refer to as the Lord's Day or the Sabbath, but even then we sometimes refer to it as Sunday. If somebody is converted, say, and let's say her name is Diana, we don't press her to change her name, even though it's the name of a Greek goddess, first of all. But I think it does raise the question, why do we not have an instance of protest here about the names being given? Well, I think it's the basic principle that we need to bear in mind because there's not much we can do about what people do to us. What people say to you is nowhere near as important as what you say yourself. What people do to you is nowhere near as important as what you do yourself. I mean, if they want to call Daniel that, well, that's it then. What do you do about that? I mean, if the world wants to call me something, what do I do about that? He keeps his name when he can, and he uses it when he can, but he recognizes there are things I can't control. It doesn't affect my obedience to God. At every point in God's law, I am going to be faithful to the law of God, but I have to accept other things that are, they just are, and so be it. It's part of my humiliation in Babylon. And we have to recognize that. We have to learn to distinguish between things we can change and things we can't change. Sometimes I think we we are accepting things we shouldn't accept, and we try to change things that we've got no business or no reasonable expectation to, to change anyway. He was wise. These four were wise to know the difference. 
Right? They want to call us that. So be it. What can we do? What can we do? There is something in connection with that that I just want to mention to you, but I only want to mention to you mention it because I haven't worked it out fully myself. It's been said by a few people that the names of the gods in their new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that their names, the names of the false gods are corrupted a little bit here. To take one example, Abednego um, is a, a servant of Nebo, a false god. But every time that name appears in Babylonian literature, it's not necessarily, of course, referring to this man, but every time the name appears, it's Abednego. There's been a change of consonant. The same seems to be the case with the other names. They are not quite what you would expect them to be. And some have wondered if, if somehow they just, just worked a little change into the name to make their protest. Now, I don't frankly know enough about the Babylonian language and so on to pronounce on that, but it's quite interesting that. It's an interesting thought that they may, may have taken the name, sometimes used it on official documents, but just subtly changed it. In other words, I know who I am, and I'll remain who I am. That's the important thing, that we remain who we are. But then again, as well as changing the name, how did they respond to the new education? Well, I suppose the way most of us do, we take what's good and we reject the rest. But that's not as easy as it seems, is it? That sounds fine, you know, just take the good stuff and just filter out the rest. Not as easy as it seems, even in university, and this is a university. In fact, to be able to take the good and reject the evil, you need two things. You, You need to keep yourself, and you need God to keep you. First of all, you need to keep yourself. There's a special warning in the Bible against false philosophy and false science. First of all, uh, take philosophy. Can you actually turn, it would be helpful here if you just turn for a minute to Colossians uh, chapter 2 and the passage that we read. And uh, you'll find that on page 1353. Colossians 2 and verse 8. Now, in the previous two verses, he's telling them to, just to make sure that they're close to God, that they're rooted in Christ and that they're edified, built up in him. But then verse 8, there's a sudden warning. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of man and according to the basic principles of the world, Babylon and not according to Christ. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. The word philosophy here is love of wisdom. That's what philosophy means, to love wisdom. Now, every Christian should value wisdom. Every Christian should value philosophy in a sense. Logic is important to be able to reason exactly. A lot of us as Christians, I think, are suffering because we're not able to reason exactly. Rhetoric, the ability to express our reasoning in a clear, accurate, and persuasive form, that's important too. Critical thinking generally, very important. 
But philosophy here is coupled with empty deceit. It's coupled with the expression human tradition and elementary principles of the world. In other words, it's this slippery kind of philosophy that is often quite persuasive because in verse 4 he warns against persuasive words. So it's this slippery form of thinking that's very persuasive, but it's godless and ethically void. It never seems to identify what's really right and wrong. And in the realm of, of metaphysics generally, it never really identifies what is the case. I studied the thing myself. I'm no genius when it comes to it. But I remember being very enthusiastic in the first year of philosophy in Glasgow. Very, very enthusiastic. Come third year, I was pretty disillusioned. Why? Because I felt the thing was just going round in circles. One man's paper was just taking the other man's paper verbally to shreds, finding logical inconsistencies to it, and that seemed to be the end of that. One philosopher struggling to understand what another philosopher was saying. And I thought, well, what's really going on here? I mean, are we ever at a bedrock of anything? I mean, are we, are we ever building on a foundation here? Is there something that we can really understand and accept and believe? And I think the answer was no, there actually wasn't. The apostle uses a very interesting expression in verse 8. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. Cheat you. The expression in the Greek means in case anyone makes you captive through philosophy. And isn't that interesting? Um, it's one thing to bring Daniel physically into another captivity, into a captivity. It's another thing to bring him mentally into a captivity, and that was the danger. That as well as being physically in the place, he'd become mentally and spiritually in the place. Thankfully, he's on his guard against this, you see. But so many of us are not, you see. And sometimes we think we're up to doing a course in history, and we're up to doing a course in philosophy, and we're up to doing a course in geology and the sciences, and we think we can handle it, and we think we can reconcile it very easily to our Christian faith. But before we know where we are, we are taken captive by the Babylonian system of thought. It's a far more dangerous captivity, is it not? Beware a love of wisdom that isn't really wise. No form of thinking is wise if it doesn't have God at its center, period. I spoke a minute ago about reasoning that doesn't have a bedrock. The bedrock is the reality of God. As though in the world you open your eyes, the immediate impression is other greater other, higher other. That's the start of your philosophical journey. But then again, the Bible warns us against science too. Now, not quite in the way that we might think, but if you just move forward again in your Bible to 1 Timothy and chapter 6, and you'll find that on page 1365. Page 1365. Just the last two verses of the chapter, of chapter 6. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. That's the gospel. 
avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called scientia, science, knowledge. The claim here is that there's a knowledge around that isn't really knowledge. People claim to have it, they know it, they want to impart it to you, but he says, watch it because it's not really knowledge. It's not properly substantiated. I was listening to a to something online recently where a fellow was saying that he firmly believed in the concept of a multiverse rather than a universe. There's a sense in which we do too, because we do believe that heaven is essentially another universe, really. But nonetheless, that's not how he meant it. He said, I believe in a multiverse. When he was asked why, he said, because it's not likely that there is only one universe. There must be many, probably an infinite number. It sounds very clever, but I thought we were the ones who were supposed to believe things without evidence. Where is the evidence for that? Well, it's not there, really. But when such an idea has peddled for a long time, it becomes knowledge. It's considered to be knowledge that is held by an elite community. That elite community in the Middle Ages were priests. If they said that a piece of wood actually came from the cross of Christ, well, hey, who are we to argue against that? Even though common sense could have told you that if you added up all the pieces of the wood that were supposed to come from the cross of Christ in Europe, you would have a forest. But hey, they know. Well, now it's a case of they know. But do they? Do they know? Or is it a speculation? Of course, it is a speculation. The commitment to the idea that everything has evolved, as they say, from goo to you, from, from, from goo to you, that is another speculation. But it is pretty much taken as accepted fact. Knowledge. Knowledge which you have to believe and which you have to process in order to get your papers recognized. Paul says, beware a wisdom that is not wise, and beware a knowledge that is not really knowledge. But human speculation, based on human tradition, according to the basic principles of the world. Now, it's not always as easy to recognize that and resist it as you think. After all, I repeat, where were the rest of the Jews? Swallowed up in the whole thing. If you're confronted with this system, can I say two things to you? The first of all, this, the main one, first of all, is this. When you're going to university, when you're going to secondary school, stay close to God first. Not in a cliched way, I really mean that. Stay close to God. Walk with God. Pray to God. Read the word of God. If you don't do that, if you don't attend the house of God, if you don't have fellowship with God's people, you will drift and maybe make total shipwreck of your soul, and you don't want to do that. But second, you need to keep up your study along a Christ-centered worldview to the same level as where you're at in Babylon. Don't immerse yourself in the study of any subject without keeping up with how it's to be seen from God's point of view or from a Christian point of view. 
If you're studying history and they present to you the covenanters as uh, radical political fanatics, or if they say to you that the disruption, again, perhaps had nothing of faith in it, I think there was more than faith in it, but that there was nothing of faith in it, well, read around it. Look at it from God's point of view. Look at it from the point of view of the people involved. Because, you see, every subject will be repackaged to you. Every single subject will be repackaged. And anyone who did anything for God will somehow just be brought out, their character assassinated, and those who are against the Lord will be elevated. Because that's what Babylon does. It takes the holy vessels and it puts them into its own temple. And it exalts the great statues of man. So two basic things there. But before I leave education and um, before I just close this, I mean, uh, next time, God willing, I mean, not next Sabbath morning when we have the Lord's Supper, but the one following, I want to look at the the seduction and the temptation, how they resisted that. But before I leave education, I want to refer to one more thing. And it's important in the day in which we live. Daniel's example in Babylon and Moses in Egypt is often used as a reason why we should be content to stay in a humanistic education system. In fact, it's the only biblical argument really used by people who want to stay in a Babylonian system. They will say, well, look, Daniel. Daniel was in a secular system and he flourished in it. What would he say to that? Well, let's approach that biblically. Let's put our thinking caps on. How would you answer that argument? Well, the first thing I would say to that is this, that Daniel um, was helped and protected by a godly primary and secondary education. He is effectively coming into university here. And he has been chosen for the primary Babylonian university, the king's university in Babylon, because at home in Jerusalem, he showed such promise as an outstanding student. So this is university level. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is a bit more fundamental than that. If you were to go up to Daniel and say, Daniel... You're a real role model to me because you're encouraging me just to to go to Babylon and to take my children to Babylon and be educated there. Daniel would look at you with a really puzzled look on his face and he'd say something like this. Look, I'm here in captivity and I'm here in bondage. I'd give anything I can could to be back in my own city and in my own university. I'd give anything I could to be able to look at the world from the foundation of God's word and to study every subject that I'm studying in Jerusalem with God at the center. In fact, I'm here in Babylon and in the King's University because back home we didn't value Christian education. We envied the pagans. We envied their education. We wanted our children to exceed, to succeed. We forgot God. We forgot the Sabbath. We forgot everything that made us distinctive and made us the people of God. 
What do you mean by saying that I'm a role model in that I encourage you to go to Babylon? The only way in which Daniel is a role model is by telling you that if you find yourself in Babylon, use it and do well in it and ask God to help you in it. The problem that we have, you see, our problem is that we're choosing Babylon. We're choosing it. The door to Christian education has been open for a long, long time in this country, but nobody's walking through it. The big question is why? There's more money in Babylon, absolutely. But why don't we have sprawling Christian secondary schools in all our cities? Why don't we have them in places like Easter House, Sightill in Edinburgh? Why don't we have schools that make such a difference to children's lives that people who haven't a clue about Christianity say, that's a great school, because it actually does something to children as well as teach them. It actually addresses their problems. Why don't we do that? Because we're in voluntary captivity. It's a kind of Stockholm Syndrome. That's what it is, a Stockholm Syndrome, where we look at our captors and we say, oh, we need you, we need you. We don't. When Abraham Kuyper had his vision of a free university in Amsterdam, we really need to be thinking along these lines, especially for our children's sake. Um, you see, I saw a graph yesterday, and I'm closing with this, a chart that showed the decline of Christianity in Scotland over the last 50 years. In most of Scotland, the church-going population is now less than 6%. Now, if, if you don't think that a five-day-week system of Babylonian education hasn't contributed to that, well, I don't know. I do. I do. I think schools in the past were the key to keeping our country Christian. And the way they've been let go is one of the major reasons why everything has fallen apart. We send them all to Babylon. And we surprised, we're surprised when less than 6% turn out wanting to keep a connection with the church. We really, really, really need to think about that. <laughs> Our uh, cultural bondage is very deep, isn't it? Um, it's not just education. Have you noticed how our vocabulary is changing? Just, just pardon me saying this before I close. Words that are now out are sin, obedience, morality, truth, commandment, authority, punishment, husband, wife, boy, girl. wonder how long that one's going to stick around. Words that are in are choice, equality, inclusiveness, diversity, pluralism, discrimination, Tolerance. Just, just watch the vocabulary. Read the vocabulary in use and not in use anymore. We're 50 years behind at least in terms of getting education sorted out. Some people say, well, it's coming to the time for Christian schools. No, it's not. It's about 50, 60 years, way past time. But Daniel withstood his location and his education. The real crisis was going to come with his temptation, as it always does. The world... How would he resist the world? Let us pray.
gracious God, we pray that you would grant us strength, knowledge, and zeal. Grant us the ability to hold on in a world that is increasingly Babylonian, where Jerusalem has disappeared out of view. But we pray that your people would not forget Jerusalem. And we pray that we would continue to sing her songs and remember her truth. We ask you, O Lord, to build us up and our children in our most holy faith. And if they are in an environment that is alien to their faith and to their standards, help us, O Lord, to take great, great care that they be not overwhelmed by the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 119, on page 408. Psalm 119, page 408, and at verse 97. We'll sing three stanzas to the tune St. Andrew. O how... Love I thy law, it is my study all the day. In verse 99, then all my teachers know I have more understanding far, because my meditation thy testimonies are. In other words, knowing God and the truth just really sets us off for education. So the opening three stanzas of that section, let's stand to sing. of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.